0: Welcome back to Institutionalized, a podcast about American institutions and why they've gone crazy. I'm Aaron Sibarium, a reporter at the Washington Free Beacon. And I'm Charles Fain Lehman, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a contributing editor of City Journal.
1: Charles, how are you doing today? I'm, I'm doing okay. I discovered last night... I we opened our dishwasher and discovered that it was filled to the point of full to the point of overflowing with water. So I no longer have a an operating dishwasher. And what I've learned, what I've learned in this enterprise is that it's actually very hard to do repairs on a dishwasher yourself. There are lots and lots of things, finicky things that you have to take apart. There are older models apparently of the same dishwasher in which you just like remove you remove the filter manually, but you can't do this in this dishwasher. I'm finding myself in a position where like, I'm going to have to call somebody who's going to charge me $150 to do something I'm sure I could do with a screwdriver and YouTube if I could apply myself to it, but I might also disastrously destroy the dishwasher. Only $150 for that. It could be (laughs) worse. That's I, I, I don't want to spend it. I will spend it. No, I mean, I think this got me thinking for some reason about the topic of our conversation today. Insofar as, you know, dishwashers are like people, if you take them apart wrong, they don't work anymore afterwards. And, you know, I, I, we're interested today. I see, I'll let you talk about a topic of the day, but, you know, we're interested in the authority that's arrogated to doctors who are a bit like plumbers and also a bit not like plumbers, insofar as they will charge me lots of money to do things maybe I could do myself, but also maybe I could do disastrously wrongly if i mess it up. So, you know,
0: Aaron, why don't you why don't you tell our listeners what we're interested in today? Yeah. So, today there's kind of two things. One we're we're going to talk a bit about chronic illness in particular and various medical debates surrounding it, but really we're going to use that as a kind of entry point into a deeper debate about medical epistemology and the limits of official medical consensus, when you can trust it, when you can't. And how do you know when to trust it? How do you know when not to? We'll introduce our guest in a minute, but Charles, I know you have some kind of meta thoughts on how we ought to think about these issues. Yeah, I mean, I think
1: what's interesting to me today is, you know, medicine is one of those peculiar areas of modern life, which is both dramatically complex and also extremely salient to how we live our day-to-day lives. It's both really hard to be an informed consumer of medical products and also really urgent that you be an informed consumer of medical products. And so often when we are thinking about how we interact with sort of the medical bureaucracy, what we're really thinking about is how do I decide whom to trust? Not what do I know and what don't I know, but whose word can I take for granted? Whose word can I take for granted? And when do I trust myself over other people? This obviously, you know, has played out, plays out with our guests' work, but is also uh, extremely salient to the broader dispute about COVID, public health, Limitations imposed by COVID, et cetera, et cetera. Whom should I trust to tell me how the public's health works? Why should I trust them? What information can I garner on my own? So those are sort of, you know, those topics of how we navigate authority in in the health world is really what I'm interested in today. What are what are your thoughts?
0: Yeah. Well, so the only thing I'll add to that is we talk a lot on this podcast about the limits of science and the degree to which science kind of can be its own form of faith, you know, and. I think that part of what makes medical science particularly difficult is that medicine isn't just trying to restore a state of biological normality to the body, say. What it's ultimately trying to do is make people feel better, right? That's the point of medicine in many cases. But feelings are subjective. They're hard to measure. And as we'll get to in a moment, I think they're very difficult to even describe, And one thing I want to push sort of in this conversation is that, you know, we think of medicine as an offshoot of biology and kind of put it on the same pedestal as the natural sciences. But when you appreciate the kind of subjective character of medicine's ultimate desideratum, I am left thinking, huh, maybe we should treat this more like a social science. And perhaps that should influence how much kind of epistemic weight we give official medical consensus it's treated more like economics than say chemistry in terms of how much dispute there is and how you know much weight we give any particular consensus position but with that charles why don't you introduce our guest
1: yeah that's you know it's it's, it's a very light conversation we're we're not touching on anything complicated to join us in this light conversation our guest russ douthit he's an opinion columnist at the new york times the author of six books, most recently, The Deep Places, A Memoir of Illness and Discovery. Ross, thank you so much for joining us on Institutionalized. It's a pleasure to be here, guys.
2: Congratulations on the podcast.
1: Thank you. Yeah, so, you know, I, we like to start with a rocket question, and I will say I read the book. I thought the book was great. I've reviewed it positively. I know Aaron read it all in one sitting yesterday, a couple of days ago. So he's he also really enjoyed it. But I will say, I, you know, I came away from the book. Not convinced. The book is about the book is about your experience of uh, a, a controversial medical diagnosis, chronic Lyme disease. And I came away from the book not convinced that I should think that this is generally true, or even necessarily that that the things you were describing were necessarily chronic Lyme disease. Your experience was necessarily chronic Lyme disease. So I guess a good starting place for the conversation is why is this the sort of diagnosis to which you attached? Why did you find it compelling? And what should we know about the debate around
2: chronic Lyme? Sure. So I I guess I'll work backwards from those questions. But basically, Lyme disease is a bacterial infection carried by um, deer ticks, not only deer ticks, but that's sort of the primary vector that is named for a small town on the coast of Connecticut, which is where the disease was discovered in the mid-1970s how long the disease has been around is a matter of some dispute but everyone agrees that for some complicated reasons it really took off probably starting in the 1960s possibly due to suburbanization uh, you know bringing more and more people in contact with sort of patches of the deep new england woods and then it's you know various other factors including climate change most likely have contributed to its spread. So now there are hundreds of thousands of new cases of Lyme disease every year. It's all up and down the Eastern seaboard. It's in Canada, it's in the Midwest, and you even get cases as far south as Florida and in the Western United States as well. Um, So that sort of, on that, everyone agrees. This is nothing that I'm saying is particularly controversial. And everyone also agrees that ticks also carry a lot of other illnesses from, you know, Rocky Mountain spotted fever to ehrlichiosis. There's a long list. Basically, if a tick digs into your body, there's a pretty good chance that your immune system is about to come in contact with something. So that's sort of the agreed upon public health scientific baseline around Lyme disease. Then the question is, well, how do you treat it? And there, the official CDC recommendations is you take six weeks of antibiotics. Uh, Doxycycline is the antibiotic of choice, but you can also take amoxicillin or, or a couple of others. And at that point, you're supposed to be better. The disease is supposed to be wiped out. End of story. All good. And that is what happens for some large percentage of people who get Lyme disease, let's say, For the sake of argument, it's 80%. But then you have another 10 to 15 to 20% of patients who don't get better, who either have lingering symptoms or recurrences, or just don't seem to respond to the six weeks of antibiotic treatment and just sort of stay sick. And there is a huge controversy going back to the Years immediately after the discovery of the disease, and basically continuing pretty steadily since about what is happening with those that those people, and it's a lot of people. It's you know, thousands and thousands of people, and what is happening in their bodies and what doctors should do about it. And the sort of official CDC view is that we don't know what's happening in their bodies, and doctors shouldn't do anything about it because, we, you know, we have a few studies suggesting that longer-term antibiotic treatment doesn't seem to do much for those symptoms. And on the principle of first do no harm, you should basically step back and wait and hope that the symptoms just go away on their own, which they do for some people, but then for lots of other people, they don't. So that's sort of the the controversy. And then within that. Controversy, there are different schools of thought about what is going on. There's the school of thought, which is very widely held, I would say mostly by people who actually haven't looked into the debate in great detail and just come to it with sort of some baseline assumptions about chronic illness and, you know, sort of some kind of mind body link or psychological link. And this is the assumption that you know, whatever it's all in your head means, somehow the illness is all in people's heads. And maybe it's, maybe it's hypochondria, maybe it's Munchausen syndrome on some large scale, maybe it's just some sort of general, you know, people like to overly focus on their aches and twinges and that increases after you've had some illness. And so that's what's going on. That's one view. A second view would be that these people are suffering from an autoimmune condition. Basically, your immune system is triggered in some way by the Lyme disease infection. It sort of goes wild and can't shut itself off. So even though the antibiotics have killed the actual bacteria, the actual infection, your body is still reacting as if it were still infected. And so therefore, chronic Lyme is probably akin to other autoimmune conditions, lupus, these kind of things that are usually treated by rheumatologists. And indeed, some of the first doctors to work on Lyme disease were rheumatologists. And so this has been sort of a theory of the case going back to the 1970s. And then the third theory, I'm sorry, this is a long answer. (laughs) That's okay. The context is important. The context is important. The third theory, which is held by a you know, small but substantial group of sort of, you know, outside the mainstream doctors who mostly only treat patients with Lyme disease at this point, who are often described by people who like them as Lyme literate doctors and by people who don't like them as quacks, is that, you know, if someone has an illness and you treat it and the symptoms are still there or they recur, they probably still have the same illness. And so you should continue to treat them. And in the case of Lyme disease, the bacteria itself shows a lot of weird features that make it challenging for antibiotics or your immune system to kill it. It shape shifts, it burrows into your tissue, into places that are hard for large concentrations of antibiotics to reach. And then at the same time, because ticks carry multiple pathogens, you can often have someone who has Lyme disease and one or two or three other co-infections, and those need to be treated too. Otherwise, you know, just treating the primary infection won't get them better. And so, these doctors end up giving people large, essentially combinations of drugs over long periods of time. Usually, multiple antibiotics, and then other things, herbs, and enzymes that are supposed to have the effect of flushing the bacteria out, making it easier to kill them. And generally the pattern with these doctors is, you know, if you have what you think is chronic Lyme disease, they will go in, you will go in and they'll say, all right, well, we're probably going to treat you for six months to a year, could be shorter than that, could be a bit longer and we'll get you better. And lots of people claim to have gotten better while being treated by these doctors, which is why they see so many patients and have successful practices, even though they don't take insurance in most cases. So they tend to be very expensive to see. And then the final thing lurking under all this is the question about testing. Generally, it's agreed testing for Lyme disease is not very good. There's arguments about how not very good it is, how many cases are missed, But that too factors into this, because you'll have patients who seem to have the symptoms of Lyme disease, which are extremely varied and complex, but who don't test positive on an initial test. And then again, the Lyme literate doctors are more likely to say, we're going to, you know, we're going to do this more complicated form of testing, and we're going to interpret the test somewhat differently than the CDC interprets them. So that too is a zone of controversy. So that's, that's the long sketch, and I'll pause there before telling well, you why about my own experience, because that was well, a lot of talking.
0: I mean, I think, I think I'll let Charles question your lived experience in a minute, as I know he wants to do. But I, I mean, just to, to bring out one important point, so could you just briefly explain a little more about why doctors, many establishment doctors, are so resistant to the the kind of third camp you identify because in the book you talk a lot about how establishment medical professionals worry that if we give people too many drugs or try these experimental treatments we will just do more harm than good can you maybe expand on that argument a little more and steel man it because that's one of the nice things in your book that you kind of steel man the people who are critical of your own kind of self-diagnosis right so uh, i'll steal man in a second i mean
2: first there is just a lot of ignorance among doctors of the actual contours of the debate so there is i think a reasonable debate about sort of you know autoimmune the autoimmune versus continued infection theory Mm -hmm. but a lot of doctors are just sort of unaware of what is at this point i think a pretty large and robust body of research showing that Lyme infections do persist in many cases after antibiotic treatment. there This was not true thirty years ago. There wasn't a lot of this evidence, but now we have a lot of sort of cleverly designed studies with animal subjects where, you know, you will infect an animal with Lyme disease and treat them with antibiotics. And then they've done things like they've had ticks, <laughs> then then, feast on those animals that have supposedly been cured, ticks that don't carry Lyme disease. And after the feasting, the tick now is found to carry Lyme disease. So that, that's sort of the the most vivid example. But there's, I, I think there is a lot of, I, I think that a reasonable person who sits down and mm-hmm. reads the studies, the case histories, and the data would come away saying there's good evidence that Lyme disease can persist. And that part, and That part, I think there's a certain kind of ignorance that's often at work. So that's not me steel steel manning (laughs) the the medical consensus. Now I'll steel man it a little bit and say, okay, so yes, maybe there is some evidence that Lyme disease persists, but these doctors who are treating it are, you know, they're operating one. well, Well, I think the most important thing is that the doctors who are treating it don't have... A simple theory of how you treat it. They have multiple theories. They try many different things. They do, you know, things over a long period of time. And in a way that just makes it really, really hard to devise a, you know, double blind placebo controlled study to test what they're doing. To the extent that there are those tests, they basically just take the existing protocol for Lyme disease, the six weeks of antibiotics, and they extend it a little bit. And they say, you know, okay, instead of six weeks, we're going to do 12 weeks. And when they do that, they don't find big differences between the 12-week treatment and the six-week treatment. And that's uh, that's sort of the normal way that you do medical research. You don't design a study to test Overlapping multi antibiotic combinations, right? Over, you know, 18 months of treatment with, you know, with breaks in between antibiotic doses on the theory that you want the infection to sort of resurface and then treat it again. That's just not how our system of medical research and testing is set up to work. And so I think the debate would look very different if these outsider doctors said, here's the two drugs you have to take. You take them for six more weeks and, you'll get better. But that's not what they're saying. They're saying something that doesn't fit well with the systems of research and practice that we have. So that understandably creates a certain bias against them. They and and then connected to that, you know, they tend to they will treat patients who don't meet official CDC criteria for having Lyme disease, you know, for instance, you know, one of the one of the key tests for lyme disease is called the the well there's sort of two overlapping tests but just to simplify basically the cdc says you need five bands to activate to show the presence of antibodies for us to say you have lyme disease right and so what a lot of these doctors will do is they'll say okay i have someone who shows symptoms consonant with lyme disease he spent a lot of time in the connecticut woods and i keep testing him And he gets three bands to activate or two bands or four bands. And he never hits the five bands, but look, he's got all these other symptoms, all these reasons to think he has Lyme disease. He's getting a bunch of the bands to activate. Let's treat him as if he has Lyme disease. Right. But if you're not, you know, if, if you're not one of those doctors, you can look at that and say, okay, this person is just creating way too expansive, you know, categories for who has Lyme disease treating outside CDC categories and, This is another reason not to trust what they're doing. They see Lyme disease everywhere, right? And then I think most importantly, there's just, you know, this is not at all unique to the Lyme debate, but, you know, once you set up a kind of outsider community, that community takes on certain characteristics, anger, paranoia, (laughs) conspiracy theories, right? Like, you know, if you're in a world where, well, if you're a patient who the official medical system has failed to treat and has told you that it can't treat, and then you go outside that system and find someone who will treat you, it changes your perspective in all kinds of ways. And at the best, it makes you very open-minded. And at the worst, it makes you, you know, someone who's open-minded to the point of believing in almost anything. And so the people inside official medicine often, you know, we'll sort of look not just at like the sort of specifics of what's being done to treat patients who think they have chronic Lyme disease, but also the whole culture around it. It's like, you know, oh well, they're trying Reiki healing over here and they, you know, there's a lab leak hypothesis for Lyme (laughs) disease right over there. And, you know, it just becomes easy to see this as the equivalent of like, you know, anti-vaxxers, you know, the sort of the paranoias of the COVID era that have to be resisted and kept at bay. So all of that's going on. And then the other thing, right, is that like Lyme disease is really prevalent in the Northeast. So lots of doctors have had it. And basically the doctors who get it <laughs> and treat it and it goes away have this really strong personal reason to just assume that that's how it always works. And indeed the doctors who end up becoming outsider doctors are very often people who have had a personal experience with chronic Lyme themselves. So there's this kind of personal selection, Mm -hmm. right? That that 80-20 difference in patients translates into a difference in how the doctors themselves think about Lyme disease. So there's more going on, but that's sort of a sketch of part of where, part of the assumptions that inform the medical consensus is resistance, doubt, and skepticism about treating Lyme patients long-term. Well, so I think, I think to sort of engage the second to last point
1: about sort of the broader chronic Lyme community, it seems to me like when you move outside of things which can be measured in sort of standard regimented medical or empirical approaches, which is part of your argument, right, is that we, we have poor tools for measuring the efficacy of these interventions. On the one hand, you're able to better tailor medicine, but also on the other hand, you sort of submit yourself to the risk of a lot of false positives. So the the case study that I thought about frequently throughout reading the book was in the early two thousands. There was this enormous controversy about Morgellons, which was a disease. For those listeners not in the know, which was a, a claimed disease, there were large internet communities of people who believed that there were parasites under their skin and the parasites exuded these sort of like fibers. When they tested, when the fibers were tested, they really just seemed to be things that rubbed off of clothing. The parasite sensation seemed to be delusional parasitosis. And the whole thing was sort of, is sort of chalked up historically to people can be convinced of anything by the internet. That really there are, I think, very powerful had lot, they're, they're, they're very powerful, uh, persuasive tools that can come from that kind of group of facts. So while we can say that there's a logical causal story where Lyme disease can persist more than we believe it persists, I guess the question for me comes down to, on the other hand, there's clearly this dynamic of people who are suffering don't necessarily know what they are suffering from, can come together around an explanation which is not necessarily measurable and so hard to falsify. But requires course of treatment that can be dangerous to them. So so I guess the the question is, what do you think about that dynamic, both within sort of chronic Lyme and that discourse, but also in general? What do you worry about that dynamic? How do you respond to that? Or is that not a
2: concern? Maybe the more gallons people were on to something. Yeah, I mean, so you know, one. I guess, I guess, you know, I can be self discrediting very quickly and say, I've done a lot of reading about Morgellons. I did not put it, I didn't put it into the book. There, there have been some interesting recent studies carried out by, again, people who are inclined to believe in chronic Lyme disease that argue that many cases of Morgellons are in fact, a version of Lyme disease, or that there is a strong overlap between positive tests for Lyme disease and certain things that get described as Morgellons. Again, this is not, you know, basically what happened with Morgellons was there were a couple initial studies that said, you know, this is, you know, provided evidence that this was delusional and that did some analysis of some patients' supposed rubbings of their skin Mm -hmm. and said, you know, this is fabric or whatever. And after that, there hasn't really been much research on it. And the research that's been done, again, this is the self-selection <laughs> problem, right? Research has been that's been done has been by people who have this sort of preemptive interest in chronic yeah, illness.
1: Mean, the, the Morgellons but, Foundation people are
2: pretty sure that chemtrails are involved, is all I can say on this Yes, one, which, no, It's causing me to be suspicious. And, <laughs> yes, it, and as, as it should. So I, I'm not here to convince you today forever that you know morgellons isn't just sort of a delusional internet mediated condition i tend to be you know because of my own experience more skeptical than a lot of people of the idea that lots and lots of people you know get these sort of purely delusional conditions Yeah, obviously it happens, right? And the internet is obviously sort of a force for this, to some extent. You've seen it just in the last, you know, in the last year or so with some of these sort of, you know, what is it, the the TikTok phenomenon? TikTok Tourette's, yeah. TikTok Tourette's, exactly, right? So that, as far as I can tell, seems like a pretty clear example of a internet-mediated phenomenon, which, you know, doesn't mean there isn't something, you know. with with any illness that you describe as psychosomatic, like, you know, something physical is happening in in people's brains, probably as they are sort of adopting these ticks, right? It's not, you know, the, the, whatever the mind body connection is, the mind inhabits the brain. And, you know, we have, I mean, not to divert us too much, right. But there's a fair amount of evidence that, you know, mental states and efforts can have effects on brain plasticity, all of these things. So even, you know, you can't draw this sort of perfectly firm line, even right. between the physical and the mental, even in cases that are clearly where the issue clearly starts as a mental condition. Even if it starts as a mental condition, you still have to come up with some kind of treatment, right. in other words. But yeah, I mean, I, I think you have to concede that this, you know, that that this goes on that people either have some underlying condition and are seeking out, you know, explanations and answers and group themselves into communities without being actually certain that community is what they really have slash, you know, you have some people who really do have Munchausen syndrome, right. Who really do, you know, really are hypochondriacs of various in various ways. Right. Right. you know, or, I mean, you know something like Havana Syndrome, right? Yes. The disease allegedly caused by Russian-directed energy weapons, right? The the claim, the claims around that. I, I again, I am sort of primed to be more open to the reality of Havana Syndrome than the average skeptical journalist. Although there are a number of otherwise skeptical journalists who became quite convinced of this, seemingly because the you know, the Department of Defense was telling them to be convinced, which was its own interesting phenomenon. But to the right. extent that we can read about Havana syndrome at this point, at the very least, there seems to be a large penumbra of cases around the core cases that just seem like people who got sick for some reason and blamed the Russians, right? Like when I read the, you know, who's the never Trump, the the never Trump the guy, anonymous. anonymous, right, from yeah, our own newspaper, right? Same, and, yeah. you know, he had this account where, you know, he got sick and he figured it was the Russians. And, you know, if the Russians are targeting him, <laughs> they, you, you would think they'd be doing a little better in Ukraine right now. Right. <laughs> um, so, but that, you know, that obviously like people find themselves under large amounts of stress, diplomats in hostile countries find themselves under large amounts of stress and stress mediated illness is an entirely real phenomenon. And it shouldn't be surprising that, you know, that people go looking for external explanations for this when the real explanation is internal and sort of stress-based. So all, yeah, all of that, all of that's true, even if I do think there's some evidence that Morgellons has a pathogenic cause. It's uh, in (laughs) at least some cases. I can send you the study. I've seen the, I've seen the, well, okay, I've seen the study. Uh, That's
1: a
0: separate, I'll I'll let, I'll let Aaron um, yeah. So so so. I, I'll try to I'll I'll try to save Ross from Charles's uh, skeptical inquisition. And so, you know, in the book, I, I think a recurrent theme is sort of distributed versus centralized knowledge. And when sort of the centralized expert consensus fails you, you turn to what is a decentralized aggregator of information, the internet. And you know, one of the things that I think comes across is that, as you said, there are all these kind of inherent limits to official consensus and and dynamics that cause it to be self-reinforcing and often self-limiting that the internet kind of sidesteps in various ways. So could you talk a bit about how sort of data provided from like all these chronic Lyme message boards, both perhaps allowed you to overcome some of the limits that you're talking about, but then also sort of grapple with kind of the obvious question of, well, when does the kind of crowdsourcing, you know, almost Hayekian alternative to official medical consensus lead to its own perils? Because that seemed like an important tension in your
2: book. Yeah, I mean, the peril question so, one of one of the things that I'm trying to convey in the book, hopefully successfully, is that you know, I, I had never been seriously ill in my life before this happened. I had known and been close to other people who had chronic illnesses of various kinds and so was sort of, in certain ways primed to sympathy for people with chronic illness. But I still had my own version of what I think is the extremely, commonplace sense that like when people describe a chronic illness what they're describing is something that is like what everybody feels on a bad day but just a little bit worse Right. So you'll say, you know, chronic illness, people with chronic illness suffer from exhaustion. OK, well, everybody suffers from exhaustion right? from time to time. And so I guess when you're chronically ill, the dial is just turned a little further or people who are chronically ill have headaches. Well, you know, everybody gets headaches sometimes. And so the chronically ill person just has a slightly worse version or thinks they have a slightly worse version of the sort of everyday those everyday aches and pains. And that's not really what it's like at all, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's in you know, and I, I had my own constellation of symptoms that were mostly pain and various kinds of discomfort. I had sort of bouts of exhaustion, but I didn't have the chronic fatigue that a lot of people with Lyme or chronic fatigue syndrome or other things of that nature now long haul COVID mm-hmm. tend to have. So I was fortunate in a sense in that it was easier for me to continue working. Then I didn't have terrible brain fog, except at certain points. But then I was just in sort of, you know, a mix of sort of an oscillation between like overt agony, constant discomfort, and just this sort of overwhelming sense that your body is just something is completely wrong with your body in a way that is, you know, sort of effectively unlivable right? The, you know, the line about chronic Lyme is it won't kill you. It will just make you wish that you were dead. And that's a pretty accurate line. There's a, a study that I, I cite in the book that sort of compares people with chronic Lyme syndrome as, as symptoms to people who are, you know, recovering from a stroke or congestive heart failure. And it's sort of, you know, these like daily diaries of how bad do you feel from day to day? And the chronic Lyme people feel worse than everybody except the people recovering from congestive heart failure. Like it's just an incredibly awful, life-altering way to way to live. And so when you're in that landscape and the sense of your sense of risk and reward just changes completely, right? And I think it's important for people to understand that because When you talk about doing things like going on Internet message boards and having people say, oh, you know, when I taking these herbs in combination with doxycycline really helped me. And then, you know, you go and order those herbs from Amazon and just start popping them like candy. Like that sounds a little crazy, right? And it's at the very least, it sounds like not a medical best practice. would be the best way to put it, right? You're just throwing things into your body and yeah, they're over the counter. So presumably they aren't going to immediately kill you. But I, yeah, I just threw crazy amounts of different things, all, all kinds of things, you know, things that had to be prescribed, things that didn't have to be prescribed, things that shouldn't have, should have been prescribed, but that I acquired from like fish, fish pharmacies, you know, th- these kind of things, right? And all of that is in one sense, quite high risk. On the other hand, the lifestyle of the chronically ill person is itself so unbearable and sort of unsustainable, even though it is you know, actually sustained, that the risks of taking something and having a negative reaction to it just seems so minimal compared to the risk of living with this condition for 10 years or 20 years or the rest of your life that you know, the totally understandable caution of doctors in the medical system around just like, you know, letting people experiment like crazy, that caution just doesn't seem to apply. Because you have to, if you're in a situation where you will either find something that helps you get better, or you will be lost completely. And lots of people are just simply lost completely to chronic illness. And this is, again, something that you know, one of the sub themes of my book is that I'm obviously like an intensely privileged person in the jargon of our time. I am a, you know, upper middle class person with a very successful professional perch who's very wise in the ways of the internet, or I think I am, at least I'm, you know, I'm the kind of person who can, you know, if I can afford to go from doctor to doctor. I can sort of present myself as reasonable to doctors even because I'm well trained (laughs) to do so, even in situations where I don't feel reasonable at all. And in my case, you know, it took me years of experimentation to even begin to get better. And it's just sort of unimaginable to me how I would have navigated this kind of experience had I not gone into it with all of the advantages. That I had. So, anyway, that's a long circular answer to the second part about the risks. You know, to the first part about the crowdsourcing, you know, the the reality is you don't have any choice. Again, if you are yourself a sick person and there is not an official CDC approved treatment for what you have. Yes, you can hope to find a, one single doctor. And I did have one doctor who helped me tremendously, right? Who can just sort of be your Sherpa and and help you get back to health. But you're not always going to find that person. And there is a sense in which you sort of have to revert to trial and error experimentation and the wisdom of crowds with the internet as the current the current equivalent of sort of collections of folk wisdom and personal testimony.
0: Right. I mean, I, I just before Charles says something, I it seems to you hear this argument from people like James Polos and others that digital conditions are in some sense retrieving older norms, older forms. And I think your book is a good example of that, because after all, right before the advent of modern science, people still had medical problems and people did figure out how to solve them. They often did so with like really ridiculous ways. And sometimes that was bad. There was like bloodletting that didn't work, you know, all sorts of horrible trial and error. But, you know, Although like prose. But yeah. But like, you know, this phrase like Lindy, like something that's kind of ex- stood the test of time. Right. I mean, there are sort of epistemic. Techniques outside of science that clearly work well enough to have carried humanity through millennia. And I think the the internet, in some ways, and your experience with it, kind of, it, it's just an updated version of those epistemic techniques. In, in a, in a
2: yeah, and I mean, I would deny that they are outside of science. Sure, yeah, they are sure. outside of the structures of scientific research and consensus that, for good reasons, we have established in our society in order to, you know, try and get the absolute best possible, one hundred percent proof before we proceed with any kind of any given treatment they're outside that range. Right. But, you know, if you are a a healer in let's 13th century Europe, right. (laughs) And you know, you have, you know, and you, all you have access to are herbal remedies and you're trying one set of herbal remedies and they seem to have a positive effect and another group doesn't just because you don't have the, you know, the the sort of biochemical research available to tell you why certain herbs have antimicrobial properties and others don't doesn't mean you're not pursuing a sort of trial and error empirical form of work right and this this too i think is something that that i try and stress right like yes there are sort of new age you know purely mystical forms of alternative medicine that you know don't claim to have any empirical basis whatsoever but most of what maybe not most a lot of what people sort of doing holistic medical treatment of various kinds are doing is an attempt an attempt at being empirical at saying, you know, mm-hmm. and now we do, you know, now we can say like, okay, here's why Japanese knotweed might have antimicrobial properties. And so might be, it might be worth taking. Here's what vitamin C might do in your system, these kind of things, right? Like, and again, none of these work as well as, you know, penicillin works <laughs> to treat, you know, to treat certain infections, right? If they worked that well, we wouldn't have needed to invent penicillin in the first place. But when you don't have the sort of singular drug that cures your disease, yes, you're regressing in a sense, but you're regressing to the kind of work that modern medical science was built on in the first place, the Mm. empiricism of trial and error. Well,
1: and my wife likes to tell a story about she was in a clinic in college and the attending physician noted to her that the only cold remedies that actually sort of pass the Standards of double-blind, placebo-controlled studies for all of the, you know, the ones your mom would prescribe, are tea and zinc and mentholated rub. All the more fancy pharmacological ones don't actually do anything. Which you know, I've always taken as valid- about validation of the model that you know you can acc- you accrue knowledge over time. Maybe it points to something. But I, you know, I, and I, I want to ask an adjacent question. I think Aaron has another question after that. We might move towards towards concluding. But I guess you know part of what's going on here is uh, you're saying I'm doing science, they're doing science, but obviously there's sort of a, an air of authority about you know an NIH-funded, CDC-backed science that
0: as no opposed offense, to
1: Dathana, my, on a, my bottle of pills, right? Rothdath on the message board does not have the same, yeah. and some of that is some of that is a function of empirical standards, but some of that is culturally constructed, right? Some of that is a product of to whom we assign authority and to whom we don't assign authority by virtue of not necessarily purely objective standards. So I guess, how do you think about sort of the authority that we accord to doctors, physicians, et cetera? Do you think we accord too much? Do you think we do it right? What are we getting wrong? This is something that's played out, you know, in the COVID debate. Somebody with an MPH or an MD, is accorded by some is is accorded by either side uh, enormous authority depending on what they're
2: saying. Do you think that we are thinking about medical authority wrong? I, I mean, I think people like people want authority, right? That's and w- one of the interesting things about the COVID era has been, on the one hand, you have what I think is sort of a core, mostly liberal mistake, right, which is this sort of. This sense that like in a crisis, what you need is for people to have this sort of total trust in public health authorities, in capital S science, in, you know, Anthony Fauci, how he became the face of capital S science mm-hmm. itself. This, I mean, basically, he was literally the only person in the public health bureaucracy who people felt was good on TV. <laughs> it's like, <and> so <laughs> Suddenly, I mean, you know, you it's just sort of, it's just all very strange. Right. But throughout the pandemic, there's been this sense of like, you know, well, you have to trust the science and you have to trust these authorities, even though it's just like, you know, a new illness is different from a chronic illness, but they have certain overlapping features in that just as the CDC admits that it doesn't know what to do with patients who exhibit chronic symptoms from Lyme disease. With a new pathogen, you just have this period of total ignorance and then this period of deep uncertainty in which claiming we know absolutely what we should be doing is, you know, in the end, going to end up undercutting your authority in various ways, because then you'll have to change. (laughs) You'll have to say, oh, actually, we do want to wear masks. Oh, but wait, you don't want to wear those cloth masks. You want to wear these masks, right? Or, oh, wait, with this new variant, you have to do this differently. And if throughout, if everything, if every statement you're offering throughout is a statement of, you know, total, perfect, unquestionable authority, you're not actually going to retain that authority. So, I mean, I I could be wrong about this, but one of my assumptions has been that a slightly more humble attitude from sort of the purveyors of public health wisdom throughout this crisis would have been helpful to sustaining their own authority. If you had more people saying, we're in a fluid situation, these are provisional advice, it may have to change, it's okay for you to question it, we think we're doing what's right, but we understand you may have doubts you know we're not going to censor you on twitter if you raise the possibility that COVID leaked from a laboratory like just a little more a little less fear of you know fear of sort of science denial and a little more humility i think would have been really helpful but then at the same time you know the for people who reject faucian authority There's clearly just this desire to substitute some other authority in its place, right? And this is, you know, this is again, I think a pattern that I've seen a lot of sort of moving back and forth between the medical mainstream and the fringe, right? But this sense of like, okay, if Fauci got these two things wrong, I'm sure he's wrong about everything. And if this outsider critic got these couple things right, then I'm sure he's going to be right about vaccines when they come along, right? And this is, I think, what ended up leading, you know, the more sort of well-intentioned part of the vaccine-skeptical right astray, right? You had sort of these authorities and these sort of collections of people who had offered reasonable criticisms, you know, of lockdowns or, you know, masking policies or these kind of things who ended up sort of talking themselves into being full-spectrum skeptics of anything that... The CDC produced or said, and then talked a lot of other people into being full spectrum skeptics. When the reality is that, you know, it's the reality is that official science does a lot of things well, gets a lot of things right, has certain situations where it doesn't know what it's doing. And as a, it's really hard to do, right? But as sort of an informed citizen and someone responsible for your own body's health, you have to exist in a in, in a mm-hmm. state where you don't, you're always open to the possibility that official medicine is getting something wrong. But you don't start with that assumption in every case, because otherwise you're going to be the guy who says, you know, hell no, I'm not getting the vaccine. And then you die of COVID for no, absolutely no good reason.
0: Yeah so I've, I've, I've promised ross that we will not get him cancelled so i'm going to try to ask this question in a way that does not cancel him either with the left or with our friends on the right but i have to ask it so at a lot of points in your book you describe a chronic illness as an experience of effectively gnostic alienation you're not just alienated from those around you but from your body for example, you know, you talk about watching fairy tales that involve, you know, princes being transformed into frogs. You quote one of them saying, when I'm myself again, I want just the life I had, you know, then in a what I thought was a very striking passage, y- you describe, uh, what do you say? You, you talk about chronic, you say chronic illness encourages a feeling of mind-body dualism because you can feel your old self your true self, or so you think, stuck somewhere inside the body's prison, struggling for survival, waiting for release. And then you say, but it's dualism in which the power of the body over the mind is made manifest. Because the mind is always carapaced by suffering flesh, like a balloon bobbing against a hard ceiling, free to move, but not to soar away. And if my prayers were being answered in this case, the only answer was a feeling of further renovation and excavation in the bodily apparatus, which my mind could observe with amused attachment, even laughter, but not somehow escape. So maybe listeners will have picked up on this, but that description of your own condition sounds to me very redolent of the way some transgender people describe the experience of gender dysphoria. Obviously, that's not what you had, but, you know, you're convinced that the problem is in some sense your body, not your mind. You feel trapped. You talk about the renovation of the bodily apparatus. And so I am curious how, if at all, this experience affected the way you look at trans issues, but really more how it affected the way you think that the medical establishment should approach people who claim to be born in the wrong body or who claim, who demand a kind of treatment that seems potentially risky, that to sort of validate a subjective experience that's hard to even articulate, because that's the parallel that really struck me as I was reading this.
2: Yeah, so... I mean, I guess on the most, on one level, right, the experience gave me a certain kind of libertarian appreciation for why you want to live in a free country where, you know, people can try crazy-seeming things in order to feel better and, you know, not feel like their lives are unlivable. And so, you know, that, that... there there is sort of that baseline overlap in a way between, you know, the impulses that lead you to take antibiotics well beyond the, you know, CDC prescribed <laughs> norm, and also to have chiropractors put magnets on your body and, you know, so on down a list of the stranger things that at various at various points I tried. So in that case, you could say, yeah, there's sort of a kind of a kind of sympathy for. The transgender experience that the experience of chronic illness instills at the same time one, one of the i didn't really you know get deeply into this and in, in the book in a way but in in certain ways because i am 100 convinced that the cause of my illness was an actual infection that had to be killed right and that any sort of, you know, mental health issues were always downstream of that primary physical situation. In certain ways, I've ended up feeling, you know, more like, I I feel like I, I I guess I wouldn't say that I think of my own experience as sort of exactly transferable to sort of a, a form of dysphoria, right? That is fundamentally you know i think even from the perspective of sort of the most absolutely committed transgender person or activist who says absolutely i am you know my body is male but i am a woman that is you know fundamentally a statement about sort of you know a disalignment between what is otherwise a healthy physical body and your you know your sense of who you are your sort of mental, spiritual, fundamentally, right? Sort of your mental, spiritual, and psychological existence. And I don't think I had that kind of alignment or di- misalignment. I, I And, you know, the the skeptical reader, Charles, you know, many, plenty of skeptical readers. And I I very deliberately wrote the book. I could have written the book in a way that sort of left out a lot of the stranger things I did and the stranger experiences that I had But I was trying to write a book that's, true to the experience, but yeah, the skeptical reader may come away and see more parallels, than I do between this kind of experience and that kind of mental, physical, mental, physical disalignment, but fundamentally I'm convinced that what I did was restore to the extent that I have restored my body to health, not correct a misalignment that started in my psyche. So there is that difference. Then finally, you know. I mean, I've been sort of conceding in this conversation that I did a lot of high risk things, right, to try and get better. But at the same time, I don't want to overstate that because the high risk things I did, again, were taking more herbal supplements and enzymes than is necessarily recommended, and taking higher doses of antibiotics than is necessarily recommended, and doing some weird things with magnets and sound waves and so on. That is quite different from what used to be called a sex change operation is now called gender affirming surgery. Yeah. Right. I did not perform, I did not have surgery performed. And, you know, I mean, to be honest, like there were times when the symptoms were worst in my feet or legs, when I would literally think, well, I could just amputate you know, this part of my body. Right. And had I, you know, let's say I had only had these symptoms in, in my right leg, but they were sort of unlivable as mm-hmm. symptoms in my right leg. I think certainly Charles, <laughs> but any even a less skeptical person looking at that would not say, well, you know, clearly the answer to your chronic Lyme disease is to amputate your leg, right? And this is, I think, part of the challenge around transgender issues at this point is that the, it is this sort of, to the extent that it is sort of a situation where people are asking for treatment, it is the extremity of the t- treatment and its imposition in particular on you know or it's selection by depending on how you want to view it by minors that you know that is mm-hmm. that that is the core of the issue right like if it were just if the you know if it were only you know a sort of like i'm you know i'm taking i mean like we we have you know with depression right other forms of mental illness it's just sort of accepted that you know you take pills that recalibrate your internal mental states in various ways and if the core of the debate around transgender issues was just about a pill that recalibrated your mental state, it wouldn't be so controversial. Right. The issue is it's it's the step it's the step beyond that. It is the step of surgery, you know, sort of blocking puberty, these right. kind of things that are more i they're more extreme even than in their physical results right Than even mm-hmm. most of the most extreme things that people who have weird chronic illnesses try so that that too is a
0: yeah difference. I, I mean i think that kind of brings us to a good maybe kind of last question before we move to concluding thoughts which is you mentioned earlier the principle of do no harm and and how that can encourage a kind of medical conservatism that undermines what in your case you would say was necessary experimentation And I think the trans issue kind of foregrounds maybe what the real stakes of this debate are, which is that, yes, like, do no harm does constrain doctors and may, in fact, perpetuate the harm of inaction. But then the question, is there a fix for that problem? And can we in any way sort of relax the principle of do no harm that's been institutionalized in all of our kind of medical institutions? without that being worse than the disease? I mean, how do you grapple with that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I think that what we've seen with youth transitioning, right, shows that the, you know, sort of first do no harm principle is extremely malleable (laughs) under the right circumstances, right? That like at a certain point, without there being much public debate, You know, an important slice of American medicine decided that the harm of, you know, transgender teen suicide was that danger was so great that, you know, the Mm -hmm. whatever the risks associated with a, you know, very novel approach to to gender dysphoria in young people was worth it. And this sort of just happened. It was like we flipped a switch in the last five or 10 years, and it was seen as an extension of the gay rights movement. It was seen as an extension of various other trends in American society. But it wasn't like there was some long, agonized debate about, you know, what do we do about the first do no harm principle that that led to this, as far as I can tell. The change came first, and then the debate started. That's sort of my impression, that all of this was sort of rapidly institutionalized you know, there were dissenters, the sort of Paul McHugh figures at Johns Hopkins and elsewhere, right? And there had been prior debates about this in the 70s and 80s. But in this case, the change happened quite rapidly under cultural and political pressures without there being some huge medical ethics debate. Mm -hmm. The medical ethics debate is followed later. And so I'm not sure what that implies for situations where, you know, there isn't the same sort of you know, cultural transformation, spiritual, you know, spiritual dynamic at work, right? The, you know, chronic illness doesn't sort of, it used to map somewhat onto left-right divides with the left being sort of crunchy and hippie and open, more open to these things and the right being, you know, more mm-hmm. skeptical. And even when I first started writing my book, it was like, okay, I'm sort of a political conservative who's sort of, taking a more left-wing view but by the time i finished the book you know the covid era had flipped that in so many ways yeah. right and sort of anti-vaccine right. sentiment was all on the right you know a lot of people who had sort of a lot of people sort of moved from left to right just because they were sort of weird crunchy holistic people who didn't like vaccines and suddenly that made them right wing so but i think it's all very i think the veil, the political valence of chronic illness is quite unstable in our society right now which means you're unlikely to get some sort of big shift in how chronic illness is treated based on those kind of political and cultural shifts happening first which in turn maybe means you do just you it is more of a case than with treatment for gender dysphoria where you know to change the treatment you have to you know you have to prove something about the harm The potential benefit and so on—that it, you know, Mm. if and when it changes, it will happen in a more sort of medically normal way. But I'm, I'm not sure. The other thing with chronic illness that is distinctive, right, is that people don't die. I mean, people do die. Chronic illness does contribute to mortality, but you know, someone can have a chronic illness for years and decades without dying from it, and that strips away one of the simplest ways to test whether something is working or not, right? Like if people didn't die from COVID in large numbers, right? If the main challenge with COVID was long COVID, trying to figure out if the vaccines worked, right? Imagine, imagine the vaccine debate in a world where COVID was this incredibly debilitating illness but wasn't you know you couldn't do measurements and say okay mortality rates are this much lower if you take the vaccine right i mean chronic illness just by virtue of the fact that you don't have mortality figures as the final test of any treatment that alone creates sort of inherent challenges and 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 obstacles i mean one one sorry to ramble but since we're one interesting thing if you read in the literature about the debate about hiv and aids and you look, you know, there is this famous sort of dissenting view it still exists. It's there. And I think in Robert F. Kennedy's book, right, that the HIV virus doesn't cause deaths from AIDS. Right. It's the theory that, you know, it's lifestyle or, from AIDS. What? Sorry. The, the, this is the, the dissenting South African view. Poverty causes deaths from AIDS. Well, this is that that's sort of the transition, yep. right. The original view was that it is sort of health problems associated with you know intravenous drug use and you know other problems in gay communities. And then once AIDS moves to Africa, it shifts to being underlying poverty driven health issues, you know cause this. And in a weird way, that sort of outsider view is equivalent to the insider the current insider view of chronic lyme disease right it's that the lyme pathogen isn't what's causing this it's some other mix of things maybe it's triggered by getting lyme disease but whatever's going on in your body has you know all the all these other causes but with aids people you know people were dying and so once you got a treatment based on the hiv causes aids death theory and it seemed to work that pretty much, I mean, didn't end the debate, but it was pretty, pretty clear evidence, right? Like people were dying. Now they're not. We treated it this way. It seemed to work. Case kind of closed. And again, that's that doesn't happen in the same way with chronic illnesses. There isn't a moment where you say, oh, we people are no longer dying of, you know, chronic fatigue syndrome, so we know this theory of it absolutely works. And to be clear, I'm glad that you don't die if of- <laughs> Disease. but it is it's an interesting problem when we think about how controversies are settled in medicine right whether something stops people from dying is sort of the easiest way by far to settle a controversy even if in the case of like covid vaccines and so on it doesn't make it go away
0: so charles as yeah. the resident skeptic I, I, where, does this, where, does this, where does this conversation leave you?
1: I'm, you know, and uh, uh, apparently I'm the skeptic in the conversation. No, I mean, well, yeah, I mean, I think I'm not as hard as perhaps I've been presented as. That's okay. I, you know, I, I think I have two takeaways. One is that, as Ross said, what I, what I find extremely persuasive is the point about, what I asked at the beginning of the conversation was like, how do we differentiate medical authorities? How do we trust ourselves versus trusting medical authorities? And the answer, obliquely, that was given is like, when you are in this position, of suffering from unknown chronic illness, debilitating chronic illness, you do what you need to do to get better. That makes enormous intuitive sense to me. It's irrational. You know, the, the solution to the epistemic ambiguity is action. There's a pale simile, uh, like the, the pale facsimile that I was thinking of in that part of the conversation was like at the depths of sleep deprivation, when my kid was like three, four months old, I would have done, I would have taken any combination of witch doctor advice to solve that problem. And the fact that you know official advice was not being helpful Simply go beyond official advice. So, you know, I'm, I think that that's an important answer to my original question of how do you resolve this is that if there are not good answers or if if, if science is offering no real comfort, people will necessarily turn to things beyond sort of the CDC certified solutions. I guess on the other hand, I think your question, Aaron, is about sort of the analogies to gender dysphoria is a good one because one thing to say, there's, you know, an, an underlying Medical etiology that's relevant, but there's nothing once once you move beyond sort of the realm of what we can prove or what we can falsify into the sort of wild empiricism that characterizes a lot of these investigations. The the sort of study of our own subjective experiences, we are back into the world where it is hard to discern between is this what's happening or is this what I think is happening. As Ross said, there's a strong relationship between is this what's happening, what we think is happening, and what is happening. So you know where I'm left is sort of going. I I don't have a good answer to my original question. Not for th- that's not a statement about Ross's failure. It's a statement Ross's success. Where I'm sort of saying on the one hand, look, I like objective standards of knowledge. I like sort of least worst falsifiable standards. And on the other hand, it's clearly inadequate to many situations. Some of which I happen to think are good or well. S- s- some some of which I happen to think are valid. Some of which I happen to think are you know driven by social media. If, if you know how do you how do you deal with your TikTok Tourettes? So I guess I guess I am left I'm left in a position of saying once you sort of venture into that realm of the medical unknown, which I suspect is Ross is right, is quite a bit larger than we like to admit. What do you do there? I think that's the, the best answer is that it's a, I have is that it's a hard question. I think he's probably right that you have to experiment. But I think I I, I I wanna to push challenge.
2: I want to push Charles just a little bit on okay. this. Okay. Um in sorry, but just that's fine. So, so you you have I, I think that there tends to be a pretty clear distinction not always but in many cases between illnesses or pseudo illnesses that you know start as or manifest as forms of sort of you know community run amok and the kind of illnesses that are most and the biggest, chronic illnesses in America, right? So the examples we talked about, TikTok Tourette's and Havana syndrome, right? Like these are very bounded experiences where you can sort of track, Okay, here is the social contagion. Here is the group that is having this shared experience, right? and this often tends to be true and you know you have like a, the sleeping disorder that afflicts afflicted i think refugee children right you have you know this sort of population in a refugee camp having this shared you know this shared trauma this shared psychological experience that then seems to manifest itself right if you look at the big chronic illnesses in the united states over the last 30 40 50 years and we're talking about you know everything from ms to chronic Lyme disease, to chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, and so on, you're dealing with really large, variegated populations over, you know, not just sort of years, but decades, where it's, you know, when you look into individual case studies, it's really hard to pick out, you know, some sort of community-based etiology for the disease, right? Like a common pattern for Lyme, you know, people who get chronic Lyme disease is, very predictably people who are quite active like active hikers and these kinds of things right which is sort of the opposite of the you know people sitting around you know who are who are already overweight and out of shape and are on the internet and are looking for some sort of explanation for why they have aches and pains right like and and then so so you have i just i don't think the population dynamics of these conditions and i i long covid is a little trickier because it is this sort of sudden phenomenon, right, that breaks over the world and everybody's on the Internet looking at it. So you can, you know, it, it fits yeah. a little bit better, that conception. But then you also have lots of, you know, very solid scientific evidence for <laughs> You know the the persistent effect of suppressed infections in the body, and you know the latest from just a couple months ago, right? Is we now have pretty good evidence that the cause of a lot of MS is the Epstein Barr virus, right? Which just sticks around in people's bodies. This is something that is sort of well known, and I just feel like when you put those two things together, this or, these so, big, so- broad populations having similar experiences yeah. and our growing knowledge of the long-term effects of partially suppressed infections on health, I just think that should create a strong bias towards the assumption that these are different from people getting Havana syndrome. Um, I'm fine
1: saying that. What I care about is is, is how you discern the ideology, right? So as you alluded to, and I'm persuaded by the consensus is not chronic Lyme is in everybody's head, it's that chronic Lyme may reflect some immune overreaction. Uh, there's uh, post Lyme disease. I forget the ter- I forget what the term is. PLDTS. The the concern that I have is with differentiating underlying causes. So knowing that somebody had Epstein Barr and has symptoms, sort of generalized symptoms of MS, that they have, or they have phasia, they have problems moving, isn't necessarily enough for me to say they have MS. I want to go look at their brain. I would say, do they have brain blacks? If somebody has a series of, and this is the more complicated situation, if somebody has a series of symptoms, which could be associated with any of a number of these different underlying ideologies, if we say somebody's experiencing aches, pains, fatigue, brain fog? Do they have CFS? Do they have fibromyalgia? Do they have, we, we, we could say that they have a previously undetected Lyme infection. Maybe they have chronic Lyme. Maybe they have all three. If you, it's hard to differentiate among them. And so we're left in a position where we're trying to say with certainty, what do I have so that I can then discern what is the best way to treat it? Because if I have chronic Lyme, the theory says the approach to treating it is dramatically different from somebody who has CFS. Yes. But by because they don't have external signs, because they don't have sort of things which are reliably measured by objective observers because they rely so much upon these subjective experiences, I think there is an analogy. My concern again is not right, like I don't I don't in general well, okay. I suspect there's some subset of the chronic line population for whom it is like in their heads for lack of a better phrase i think there's some subset of the chronic Lyme population for whom it's misdiagnosis i don't have a problem believing that this subset of the population perhaps even a large one for whom lyme infection causes immune overreaction and a number of other theories you know my skepticism of persistent lyme is only because i try not to take strong positions on medical issues but my, my 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 point is that differentiating those things that how we how once we move beyond things that we can test sort of with, as you alluded to once we move beyond things that we can test in RCTs we are then in a sort of uh, much stranger epistemic space and how we navigate that is much more challenging is you know why i'm yes. wary of moving outside of it, even though as i've right. conceded
2: sometimes you kind of gotta i don't know what you do though i think it's a little bit undecidable right and this is to to link back to one of the things aaron said at the start right in in a way you could say it makes a case for thinking of medicine More like we think about social science as sort of occupying, you know, in still empirical, but more uncertain space. It also has to make a case for thinking about it though, as an art, right? Where, you know, part of the doctor's job has to be to, in a way, discern what is the, what is most likely in some of these cases without having a, you know, the, the absolutely certain blood test or the absolutely certain course of treatment to, to refer to. And part of that discernment has, you know, in certain ways has to be a psychological reading, but that too is very tricky because the person who has the chronic illness is going to develop psychological issues downstream of it if it goes untreated for a long period of time. Right. So that's, you know, the question, it's not enough to say, oh, this person seems to have some psychological issues. I can assume that's the cause of their physical issues. You have to also try and entangle you know, what actually is coming first. And again, it's a lot to ask of doctors. I don't want this to be, you know, sort of an argument that, you know, doctors are just failures at this because, you know, the way the system is set up, you're not, you know, you're the idea of like the doctor as your sort of artful healer. is just not how most people mm-hmm. encounter the medical system.
1: Sure.
2: Well, yeah. I, I oh. just,
1: j- j- sorry, just very briefly. And then I'll let Aaron, I mean, yeah, I then we, then we can wrap up. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> actually. Yeah. Aaron, why don't you go ahead?
0: Well, well, I mean, you can you can go, Charles, but I was just going to say, um, you know, I just make two really quick points. So, so one in sort of further defense of Ross's own kind of self understanding of what he had. One thing that struck me in the book is that you start experimenting with all these like different cocktails of drugs, and you start to notice regularities and how they make you react and you say like the x combination reliably causes y reaction in this part of my body and then if i do something else it reliably causes this other reaction and that's not conclusive evidence of course against this all being made up it could be like you could have some weird thing in your head that just makes you imagine this all it could be but the fact that physical stimuli or you know physical things you've taken to your body reliably caused you to have different reactions with some regularity. I mean, to me, that is some admittedly anecdotal underpowered evidence that something physical is going on. And if it were, if the, if the reason say someone felt sick was just in their head, it would be weird for different things to produce well, such different reactions. Well, you' have to I mean, you'd have to you'd have to you have to make the
2: in your head person very creative, right? Like you know yeah, I think I, yeah. I, you, I am I am basically at some subconscious level, I'm not the, I, I'm not just sort of deciding I have chronic Lyme and therefore reacting positively to the drugs I'm given to treat chronic Lyme my subconscious wants a more epic story, right? So it it refuses to react to the first 13 months of experiment. But then when, you know, it it decides again, subconsciously that this is now is the time to turn the page, then it starts reacting, which again, it's possible. We, I mean,
1: (laughs) we don't have time to talk about the right machine, but my, I've, you know, that the, my, my sort of immediate response my immediate response there is that not that this is indicative of sort of like human failure or weakness, not not that the phenomenon that Aaron is talking about of sort of like immediate response, but rather that like we know that the placebo effect is far more powerful than we believe. We know that social suggestion is far more powerful than we'd like to believe it is. We know that you can get dramatic results by giving people sugar pills. That doesn't say to me that like people are crazy. It says to me that the relationship between the mind and the body is far more powerful than we imagine, than we would like to imagine it is in a sort of like rationalist environment. Yeah.
2: Well, right, but the challenge to pick up on Aaron's defense of me, which I appreciate, <laughs> right? The challenge is that I didn't have a placebo effect reaction sure. to anything for long periods of time right so you have to you need an explanation not just oh doubt that you know doubt that needed to be given he needed a doctor to take him seriously and listen to him and give him some pills and then his body would start getting better you you also need an explanation of why you know the first five antibiotic combinations didn't work and you know and i did have a positive test not for Lyme but for bartonella right in the middle of it and then one of the key antibiotics that helped me was a Bartonella specific antibiotic. So then you have to say, well, you know, he got that test and then his mind, you know, decided this antibiotic would help. I mean, it's just a more, it's not an impossible story, but it's not just a doctor gives you pills and then you feel better story. There's a reason that there has to be for all of the people who've gone through experiences like I do. you, You have to argue that their subconscious is, telling a pretty complicated
0: story to them, not just that the placebo effect kicks in. Yeah. I mean, and so so, I guess the, the last thing I would say in closing before we do our recommendations and invite Ross to give any other closing thoughts he might have is uh, part of what I think it, this conversation's brought out is, is that what makes chronic illness so hard to study is that there are not legible benchmarks like mortality statistics, as Ross said, that you know, would allow us to study it and study the efficacy of various interventions and the way we can do with COVID. And it seems to me that for all its faults, institutional medicine is pretty good, almost by definition at measuring legible benchmarks and kind of, you know, determining how X or Y, you know, drug, you know, interacts with mortality rates, whatever. It's just by the the nature of the thing under discussion, it's just not that good at measuring subjective feelings. I mean, this is sort of what I started with, but so I think maybe one practical epistemic upshot here we can take is that it is probably more rational to trust official medicine when official medicine is making pronouncements about that which it is very qualified to make pronouncements about such as mortality statistics and whether vaccines, you know, reduce the incidence of COVID, what have you. And then when you get into these things like long COVID or chronic Lyme or, or other things where the, the very thing being described almost can't be measured because it essentially what it is a feeling, I mean, it's a feeling maybe with a biological cause, but ultimately what you care about is the feeling, you know, that in those kind of less legible cases doesn't mean that you don't trust the medical establishment at all. But like, I, I I don't think it's irrational to to discount it, the medical consensus about chronic about Lyme more than, say, COVID, because it actually seems to me that there are principled distinctions between chronic Lyme and COVID mortality that make one just much easier to study through the scientific method than the other. So yeah, I I would say that sort of I'm left thinking Ross's distrust, or at least kind of asterisked skepticism of aspects of the medical establishment is defensible. And furthermore, it's defensible to have that distrust of the medical establishment without you know, necessarily distrusting the vaccine, right? These are just fundamentally different things, and it's not irrational to treat them differently. I don't know if you have any kind of further closing thoughts, Ross, before we do recommendations, but, you know, go ahead.
2: No, I mean, I I am just, if you imagine a world, again, where COVID doesn't kill very many people, and so the vaccine, the point of the vaccine is just to reduce transmission or reduce symptoms, then I'm imagining that, that world and that debate. And it would be, I think, yeah, a lot more challenging to sort of resolve in the way that I think basic mortality statistics have at least provisionally resolved the debate in favor of the vaccines. But otherwise I'm we should pivot to your to the end. Sure. Aaron, did you want to start us with an recommendation?
0: Sure. So I'm going to troll Ross and maybe Charles by recommending a superhero movie. <sighs> um i'm out of here i'm sorry uh so so the batman the recent take on the Cape crusader i am recommending it because i think it actually has it's quite thematically relevant to the conversation because as people who watch the trailer will know the the bad guy is the riddler and what spoilers alert for anyone who cares but what makes what i thought made the movie so brilliant was that the very online right-wing I think he's right wing coded conspiracist ends up being totally right about everything he says from the start, even the most crazy outlandish things about all the different connections between people in Gotham. uh, Yeah. All the scandals. It's all true. And, you know, I I think Ross, you, even the book, you do mention your, uh, you know, talk about how like the very weird online people at the start of COVID were way more accurate than the official medical consensus. And I had the same experience. I vividly remember calling, you know, Nicholas Christakis and asking him like, hey, these right wing people, these are all weird and crazy. Right. And then he was like, no, actually, like they're, they're right. And like, it's going to be really bad. And then, you know, I started isolating like two weeks before everyone else. Then sure enough, it like went really crazy. And I was like, really glad I told my parents to stay inside you know the Batman is a think I think a kind of artistic depiction of how of how very online right-wing conspiracy theorists sometimes get things right. Which should perhaps make us more skeptical of other aspects of official wisdom. But I will not say more than that because I do not want to get canceled. Charles, what, uh, yeah, uh, what are your recommendations?
1: Just briefly, I'm going to recommend is a, 2020, a 2010 essay, and I'll include a link, we'll include a link in the show notes by a Polish blogger whose name I'm not going to attempt to pronounce because I'll get it wrong. It, the essay is in English. It's called Scott and Scurvy. And it's one of my favorite stories with the limits of medical science and specifically about how uh, humanity, and particularly the British empire, simply lost the knowledge of how to treat scurvy in the 19th century. We knew how to do it in the 18th century, and then we simply forgot about it. I think it's important for sort of understanding the limits, you know, how, how humans human knowledge imposes limits on the ideals of science. Ross, do you have a recommendation for us from your work, from other people's work, about a superhero? Uh, yeah, film?
2: I, I mean, this is sort of sort of on point. But of the you know various prestige TV programs I've sampled recently, I would say that the best is the Elizabeth Holmes Theranos adaptation playing on Hulu, The Dropout, with just a terrific performance by Amanda Seyfried as Holmes. And how exactly the Theranos story maps onto what we've been talking about, I think I'm not sure about and would take, you know, hours of conversation to unpack, but it's clearly, you know, it's another story from the terrain of medical knowledge slash, slash credulity uh, and how these things interact. But mostly it's just a really effective miniseries with really good performances telling what remains even now a really a really amazing and hard-to-believe story. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Ross, for joining us. Thank you, as
1: always, to our producers at Nebulous. Listeners, if you have questions, comments, concerns, diagnoses, you can find us online on Twitter. I'm at Charles F. Lehman. Aaron is at Aaron Sibarium. I think that is all of the time that we have. Until next time, I'm Charles F. Lehman. I'm Aaron Sberium. You've been listening to Institutionalized. We hope you'll join us again.